And now for your listening pleasure, the recording of Abel Gamlin when he was 10 years old. Hey. Hey. Guys, come in. Welcome to the Good Courage Podcast. I'm Jay Gamlin. On this podcast, we're going to spend some time talking about the joke everyone laughs at, but nobody really gets. What is postmodernity? And how has it reshaped everything? We'll talk about magazine ads, goths in Uzbekistan, and just why everyone doesn't deserve a megaphone. But first, a moment of gratitude. I wish you'd never go. Today, I'm thankful for Rick Steves. For most people, they know Rick for his series of books on Europe called Europe Through the Back Door. Now, frankly, his books have become so popular that the back door has become the front door. But what I am in particular thankful for is Rick's TV show. I love watching his show. Part of it's just him and his beautiful, wily nerdness. I love watching him interact and be awkward and just do himself in these foreign contexts and watching people around him sort of marvel and gaze at this wonderful man. I love him for his politic. I love him for the way he opens my eyes to new places. And, you know, whenever I'm just feeling stuck in the old US of A and want to get abroad, I can turn on Rick Steve's program using the app through the Roku for PBS, and I can go to Bulgaria or Romania or recently Turkey and Palestine, Egypt. I really love Rick Steves. So universe, thank you for bringing Rick Steves into my life. So today we're going to talk just a little bit about how in this Western European, North American culture, Australasian culture, culture, that we are encountering a major change and shift in the ways we think and behave and act. Uh, It's generally called postmodernity, and we're going to discuss it a little bit here. Now, a couple of caveats before we begin. First of all, I am not a postmodernity expert. Uh, What we'll be sharing here is what I've collected over the last 20 years of sort of Uh, researching and studying and bringing together a lot of different ideas. I looked through all my notes. I cannot find all of the the um, uh, the uh, resources that I used to uh, bring all these things together. So if you are looking for a true expert on uh, postmodernity, go somewhere else. I am not a true expert. I'm going to be doing a wildly distalized version of what postmodernity is. And so uh, I just don't want to um, play into the hands of saying that I am some sort of super expert. But this is how I understand it, so I'm going to tell you from my perspective of what that looks like. 
Number two, uh, when we talk about postmodernity, we really are talking about Western European, North American, and Austral Asian, a cultural phenomenon primarily in those places. Uh, these are the places where they've uh, were steeped into that uh, historical context of modernity, um, and many other places. There's, there's, there would not postmodernity would not be um, as uh, heavily contextualized. Um, foreign in foreign places, uh, in Asia, in Africa, and other places like that. Um, locally, indigenous um, uh, people would not understand postmodernity the way that primarily from my white European background would understand postmodernity. Uh, uh, African American culture would not um, experience it in the same way. So, it just so just to be clear, when I'm speaking here about postmodernity, and when we usually speak about postmodernity, it is a cultural phenomenon among uh, Nor- uh, Western European, North American, Austral Asian, primarily white Caucasian culture, but it has impacted um, cultures around the world. And so, I, I just want to say I'm going to be speaking about that primary context. And uh, then last, we will, as always, whenever you're doing something about a, a wide sweeping movement, you have to speak in wide sweeping generalizations. Yes, there are exceptions to every statement, and there are people that will be exceptions to every statement, and things aren't as concrete. But in order to, but to, to, to speak generally about things, we have to make these generalized statements that are generally true. And that are that are uh, I don't know what the right word is, but they are the, the 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 norm. There are things that set themselves against that norm, and that's how it is. But uh, that's what we're talking about. Last, um, I just you know putting it up in front. I am a white heterosexual cisgendered uh, Christian male, and so many much of what I'm speaking to and from is from my own cultural context and I am aware of how my cultural context has informed me in some pretty um, straightforward ways that give me blind spots to uh, positions of power and privilege that I have um, benefited from and uh, I won't be speaking directly to these things but I am uh, aware of those issues in me and so I just want to say that uh, that that is a part of the person speaking to you about all of this postmodern thing. Oh, I'm also Lutheran, so some of that might come out as well. So I just lift all that up to you as a way to begin this conversation. All right, so let's get started about postmodernity. So to discuss postmodernity, we have to uh, discuss um, really where postmodernity comes from. And, uh, you know, the name postmodernity really just means it is the era after the modern era, the last 500 years generally of what was called the modern era. And then, of course, before the modern era was the pre-modern era. Um, And it helps, I think, if you can track these uh, shifts from pre-modern to modern to post-modern in order to understand sort of like where we are now and, and some of the key things 
that have shifted. So let's go back all the way to pre-modern. Pre-modern, we're going back well before the 1400s into the you know the turn of the century around 1000. The uh, the uh, creation, the split of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church happening in the mid 1000s, and sort of this split then between what happens in Western Europe as opposed to Eastern Europe. Uh, if you just think generally where people lived and what they were like at this time, um, mostly, if, first of all, the most of the way that we understood the world we lived in was that it was very mysterious. It was sort of too big to know or to understand. And how we related to the world was really out of a sense of mystery. Um, much of what they understood in science and what they understood and the things that we take for granted in knowledge are, are, are not commonly held. Um, if you think of something just as simple as being literate, there was uh, books by themselves were an outrageous expense, and only the very, the the the, the most rich people could afford the kind of education to be truly literate in that North American, Northern European, Western European culture. Uh, there was a um, sense of which they mostly identified by their local identity. Uh, they didn't think in terms of nation states. They saw themselves as belonging, um, serfs belonging to a particular city state and their lord, and they uh, were then dependent on that lord, dependent on that authority um, in order to exist. Uh, most people uh, didn't move more than 20 miles from where they were born, and they stayed in that space. And uh, so people lived in this kind of serf slash lord uh, uh, relationship where the, the serfs provided food by tilling the lord's land and uh, the lord then was to provide protection in the event of attack. And so uh, there was a dependence on authority. Um, it was a, what we would call a help me culture where they were living in that state of dependence, um, necessarily needing help from uh, their their lord, their their uh, landowner, and they were dependent on that. Uh, most of the way that uh, information was shared was by spoken story, so shared orally, A-U-R-A-L, uh, by ear. The way that uh, conversation was shared was spoken. And so the way that information was shared was mostly by spoken word. So that is uh, generally um, what uh, the, the average person kind of understood. So if you think about what worship looked like and faith tradition looked like, it followed much of that same identity. There was a deep dependence on God as authority and the mysterious nature in which the world moved. Um, the, they, you know, uh, were not, the earth was flat, we revolved around the earth, heaven was up above, hell was down below, and uh, people uh, called out and cried out to the Lord for help from their very desperate situations, and so they were dependent on God. And the Gospels were primary at this time, not the letters uh, of Paul in the story of the New Testament, because the stories of Jesus were easily trans were uh, easily shared and transported from person to person. You could tell the stories of Jesus. Uh, stained glass was what you might find in a church building. Uh, the stained glass as uh, pictures in order to convey the story. 
you could see that uh, that the primary kind of way in which people understood their relationship with God was what we might call sanctification theology, a big word, sanctification theology. Sancti, sanctus, uh, comes like sanctified or sanctuary. It's holy. So it's how does one become holy? How does one become sanctified um, before God? And so there was a lot of stress um, in this on the body and what the body did. And so there was a lot of requirements for the body uh, to uh, prostrate, to lie on on their knees, to to make pilgrimages, to to go through these doorways of this church to see these relics on these days in order to have a certain amount of your sins expunged. Um, and it was a lot of a lot of focus on what the individual did in order to make God happy with them, so that they would re- get the help that they require. And so uh, there's a lot of focus on the doing and the works of of living out a life of faith, a heavy uh, focus on that. If you looked inside a worship space, the worship spaces were not seats, and at the center of the worship space wouldn't have been a pulpit. It would have been the altar. The altar would have been the center of the worship space. In fact, the pulpit would probably be more towards the middle of the space, and there'd be no pews, and so people would be standing there to, to listen to what the uh, uh, priest, obviously the priest and male priest, let's be honest, uh, would be sharing in that space. And at any given time, uh, there might be somebody preaching, there might be somebody doing communion at the end, there might be somebody having a baptism, and all of it sort of mingled and rolled around, and and it was a very kind of open, fluid worship experience, uh, as opposed to what we see as much more structured experience now, everybody showing up at a very particular time. Now, you would know the mass was being said because the bells would ring and you could come and take communion, but it, it was a much more fluid worship experience. So what happens? Uh, what happens is uh, into uh, this time, in the early 1400s, there becomes this huge shift in how people communicate and how communication happens. Uh, so with the advent of the printing press, what happens is now communication becomes very mobile and very cheap, that we can mass produce ideas and distribute them relatively quickly. I mean, not quick compared to what we would say now, but would able to distribute a book with 100 copies within a month. That, that would have been unheard of. Uh, before then, uh, most books were handwritten and illustrated and may take years to finish a single book. That, that one reason why they were such an expense. But with the, with the coming of the printing press, suddenly there's this burst of information. And now ideas are easily and, and quickly shared from person to person. This radically begins to reshape all of culture in that North, uh, in that Western European context, suddenly um, ideas are being transported great distances. Uh, before, with, when you were dealing with a local identity, those ideas wouldn't travel far, but now they could make great leaps. Um, idea. So a person in one place could um, uh, make a discovery, uh, a scientific discovery, or, or have ideas about a scientific discovery, be able to write this into a book and share that, and then other people reading that book would be able to add to that idea, and it would continue to grow. Um, 
there was a, a, a so that what happened was there was this burst of of uh, of knowledge that's uh, and and what seemed uh, things that were um, invisible before became visible and that's why they call this the enlightenment uh, this idea that suddenly we can see how things work and we can uh, we can understand things in ways that we weren't able to before and so there's this rise in this trust in the rational mind and in reason. Um, and so um, ideas become chief in how we uh, relate to the world. Uh, as we begin to move quickly and as people begin to connect, um, local identities shift over the next several hundred years into more of a national identity where entire groups of people form more of a nation state as opposed to city states. And so the identity through modernity is more about nations rather than local identity. Um, you can see that there's a, a shift uh, away from, um, during this time when you get into the 1600s and 1700s, a shift away from uh, a monarchical, uh, a monarchy system of, go of government and into more of a democratic system of government where there's a flattening of that high arch of the very rich landowner and the very poor serf that uh, there is this uh, shrinking of the gap between that. And so uh, a burst of middle class comes into, into place here. Um, as people are able to read and have access to information, um, they are able to advance themselves, be able to, to grow. And, and so we see um, states like the, the Medicis, which aren't a, um, they, they function much like a monarchy, but were much more like a uh, dictatorship or a class dictatorship um, based on knowledge and information instead of bloodline. And so uh, these things begin to all, so there's a breaking down of the monarchy system, um, but then people are still in a place where they're, uh, they move from dependence and authority because they no longer depend on that leader, that, that person to provide for them. Instead, they're able to provide for themselves, but they come to a place of trusting in that authority. So uh, they trust either in the monarchy or as it shifts into the democracy, and they trust in these new ideas that are bursting everywhere across um, on, uh, originally in Western Europe and then eventually over into uh, North America and then down into Austral Asia. So um, as this primarily Caucasian white culture spreads, um, it becomes this very different um, sense. And so we, in the pre-modern, the primary way of sharing information was the spoken story. In the modernity, it becomes the written word. So books are the primary way that we share information. And the reading of books and the sharing of information and reason and understanding things and thoughts and theologies and ideas become uh, chief. And so it moves away from the body being the primary place that we work out our faith and it becomes more of an object of the mind, uh, 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 an ascent of the mind. Uh, reason is what uh, takes the place of the work of sanctification. Um, justification theology is chief here in the uh, idea in the times of modernity. It's where the whole church split was over this idea of justification. What do we mean by justification? It's a very shorthand way of saying, how are we made right with God? How are we justified before God? 
And uh, these ideas split the church in dozens and dozens of directions. Does it happen at baptism? Does it happen at birth? Do, uh, do you have to be baptized after you have that reasonable assent of faith? Or can you be baptized as a child? Uh, are you? Do you have to um, pray a certain prayer? Do you have to do uh, believe a particular thing? And so how we're justified before God becomes the chief conversation around theological circles and uh, creating this division from what was a single church, um, the Catholic, Catholic meaning whole church, into Catholic and Protestant and beyond. So a, a wide split happens. Um, you can see that in worship spaces, it changes the way in which people worship in church. They move from uh, that big, wide, open space where lots of things are happening, suddenly that pulpit moves from the center of the building to the front. And the what what becomes the primary thing that one might look at, the altar will still be there, but the word begins to take central spot as opposed to um, sacraments alone. The word becomes uh, a key thing. And so the preaching and teaching of the word. And so uh, we take away those empty spaces, we put in seated rows, and voila, if you look down on top of a worship space, what do you see? A book. It looks just like a book, two columns of words. And so it begins to look like uh, that uh, the, in the modern age, the spoken and written word um, becomes chief. So here we go. So there is in uh, modernity this idea that we are very rational people. And if we ask the right questions, we're going to come to the right answers. So it's an abandoning of the mystery of pre-modernity. We've moved towards that national identity and away from a local identity. We see ourselves um, in a much more nation-to-nation -nation understanding of who we are. As we uh, don't depend on authority as we used to, we just lean into trusting in the authority, even if we're not dependent on that authority. And in some places, they abandon that authority altogether for the authority of a constitution or um, an emancipation of the monarchy. Um, and so like Bastille Day and things like that. Again, we moved from a, to a written word from the spoken word as the primary way we share information. It's gone from that help me culture and the local identity where they depended to a tell me culture. So the way we experience faith is we tell one another what we think and believe. And so the idea is what kind of Christian are you? Tell me about it. We've moved from that justification, uh, sanctification theology about our, our bodies and what we're doing and our works to more of a justification theology based on what we think and how we rationalize faith and what we and what and that leads to what we do. We've gone from that open worship space into seated rows, and uh, that is how things shifted from pre-modernity to modernity. Now. Modernity, again, it started sometime middle 1400s, early 1400s. There's no real date for these things. They, these things all evolve. And so as we see things creep towards uh, the um, 20th century, late 1800s into early 1900s, suddenly there is a big shift in how people exist and live and breathe and how they engage one another. And over the 20th century, we're going to see that there is a radical change in culture in that Western European, North American, Australasian culture 
that is impacting now a global culture. We're going to take just a real quick break here, and we'll discuss more of that when we come right back. the band Ngozi Family, uh, led by Paul Ngozi. This is from the 1974 album, or 1977 album, depending on uh, where you look at the printing, uh, the album 45,000 Volts. And uh, they're a part of a movement called Zamrock, which was a blend of traditional Zambian music with uh, uh, psychedelic rock and hard rock influenced by by bands like Jefferson Starship and Rolling Stones and stuff. So it was this really interesting blend of musical style and tradition, uh, which I think just highlights uh, a a point that we're going to be making about modernity, about how we can no longer see ourselves as a local or just a national identity, but that we've become much more of a global identity, that our ideas are crossing borders and we are uh, moving and mixing and creating new things out of multiple cultures and how that is radically reshaping our world. So uh, I would really suggest that you can find most of it. It's been reprinted. It's on Bandcamp. It's on Spotify. And in Gozi Family, N-G-O-Z-I Family, I think you're going to love them. I love this song so much. It's it's on my summer playlist for sure. So uh, take a listen. So as we begin to approach the 20th century, things become pretty radically different in a relatively short amount of time. In the early 1900s, we're talking about a time when uh, people were beginning to move and transport across cultures, and, uh, and we're beginning to find that information is moving in brand new ways. The, the very first moving picture, the very first movie, what we would call a movie, came out in 1878, and it was a radical change um, from from that still photo where you can get a lot of information from, but then to actually look and see how people live by the way they move in a place, um, that is just a huge, huge shift in how people begin to see. Uh, um, then throughout the 
20th century, we have the first radio news broadcast. That comes in 1920. Uh, just think of that. That's post-World War I. Um, starting in the early 1900s in the Industrial Revolution, we see people moving away from the farm and into urban centers, and and we begin to see them as they move into urban centers that that city culture begins to take precedence over country culture. And uh, within those cities, you see a lot of different people and cultures uh, mixing um, in, in uh, not always easy, but you find them mixing in some interesting ways. With that radio news broadcast, we now have information is being able to be beamed into people's homes. Those homes that could afford a radio, of course, they were like most technology, extremely expensive at the start, but over time became cheaper. Suddenly now information is being beamed into people's homes and they are able to share information almost instantaneously um, into people's homes. Uh, in 1936, we have our first TV news broadcast. And how this brings together both the radio news and the movie is, re is, is remarkable. Now, not only are we able to hear instantaneously, we're now able to see instantaneously things as they happen. And that is moving across the world, across nations, across huge spaces instantaneously. And the effect of how somebody who goes from a written word to how they see thing when it becomes an image or a moving image is radically different. Um, words cannot express the difference between passing on information simply as a written word and passing on information as a picture or specifically a moving picture. Uh, think of it this way. If if you were to, if there was a tsunami in Indonesia, as there was a tragic tsunami um, in Indonesia back in the earlier 2000s, in the, it would be um, information that might get to North America. If this was back in the early, late 1800s, early 1800s, it may get to North America a month later, two months later. And what you would read on a page were that hundreds of thousands of people have died. And it would be tragic, but it would be words on a page and disconnected by time as to what has happened. With the advent of a news broadcast, suddenly the, the scope and scale and seeing these things happen in real time begins to radically shift and shape how we perceive and get information. Images and pictures fire entirely different parts of our brains, and they affect our emotional centers far more than just spoken word. Um, we're much more likely to cry watching other people cry than we were just to read on a page that somebody cried. There's something about seeing something happen that affects us deeply and emotionally, and we begin to to have this interesting relationship with images and words. The first color television broadcast was in 1954 after World War II, and then uh, we'll talk about that. So, so what happens is we have this first world war. It's called a world war, but that's that's very elitist for uh, European people because it really was a, a European and North American contest. It really did not involve the world at this point. Um, what happens in 
the Second World War is we begin to see that, yes, the scope and the economies become an actual round-the-world conflict. That in the Pacific theater and in the European theater, we see war bringing together nation-states across vast areas. Uh, with war often comes huge bursts of technology. And so with these, this massive war becomes a, a sudden spurt of technological advance, advances of information. And so we begin to see things like color television, radar, um, uh, and, and how we communicate becomes a huge issue. And so conversation about how we communicate with one another um, becomes central to the conversation in these military-industrial complex sort of ways. Um, as this moves through, we have these people um, that have gone off to war, and they've fought this war for ways in which they thought very justly. They thought very justly for what they were doing because of the tragedies that were happening in the European theater, um, in particular to Jewish, uh, gay, and lesbian people, um, uh, people with uh, developmental uh, needs, intellectuals, uh, a huge variety of people that were on the fringes were targeted and um, and and killed for for their differences. Um, in uh, in the Euro in the Pacific theater, we saw awful things happen to the Chinese as the Japanese invaded that uh, that country, and uh, it was there were living out of this grand authority that the people trusted in the authority of of Hitler. They trusted in the authority of the empire. And so they were still living in that modern sense. And so after living this giant just uh, war, what they would call a just war, I'm not, I would argue, I'm not sure what war is just, but we, I, too much to get into now. Blah. What we see is they come home then after fighting this war and suddenly they're told they're not allowed to drink from that water fountain. They're not allowed to eat from that counter. They're not allowed to use that kind of bathroom. They have to take the, the freedoms that they were given uh, uh, working when uh, their, their partner or husband had been off to war and now she is able to work and now she's told she has to go home and those freedoms that she had experienced are, are taken away from her. And the injustice of that um, leads to a huge upheaval beginning in those 50s and then into the 60s where we suddenly have a major cultural shift that happens with the civil rights movement is fed by the um, these advancements um, the uh, the equal rights amendment um, happened in this the sexual revolution all happens in this and here's what happens um, what happens is that uh, the these protests these peaceful protests um, uh, of places like Selma and places like Birmingham, uh, when if it was only shared as a written word, what you would get is a filtered response of a newspaper article that might tell you that um, so many hundreds of uh, black and brown people, what they might call colored people, um, you know, derogatory words for people, um, rioted and the police had to put them down. And you would trust that as what really happened. But now what's happening is that the information, what you're seeing is the actual protest being beamed into your home and what you're seeing is not just the words filtered through ABC, NBC, CBS, newspaper, and radio, but you're able to make an idea of what's really happening there from what you're seeing. You're seeing the fire hoses turned on. You're seeing uh, the dogs being sicked on them. You're seeing people being pulled away from their work. You're seeing people protesting and marching. 
no longer can in modernity most of the information most of the information could be controlled it can be controlled by a centralized group um, it was it was easier to to separate that out that information and pre-modernity the church held all information that's why they said the you know the Copernicus could say actually we're not the center of the universe and the uh, and the church would say well you're wrong about that and you're a heretic and you're kicked out in the end uh, Galileo in modernity would have to go through the same thing but then eventually the church would have to change its position because they could see in the written word and in the evidence that this had changed but then it was still kind of information was still captured by the authorities and ABC NBC CBS newspaper radio they still controlled the information as TV news broadcasts things into our own, now people are being able, being able to start having their own thoughts and opinions and feelings about what's happening. Um, it, we move from that tell-me culture in modernity into a show-me culture where we want to see what it is that we're learning about and what we're thinking about. Uh, this leads to a huge skepticism in authority, um, uh, as we you know we trusted in uh, governments to be right and have found that we are willing and gullible to follow um, terrible leaders into terrible spaces and do things we never thought we would ever do. Where we would ever do those things, we find ourselves um, um, circumspect of that of of following in authorities who tell us what is right and what is wrong and suddenly they're telling us what is right and what is wrong and yet they are standing up for segregation and that's just not right and wrong and so it leads throughout the 20th century into these major cultural shifts um, and, it, and it's because the way we communicate now is by both image and word so in 1969 there was the first what was called the ARPANET ARPANET was the original um, uh, internet. Uh, it was a military complex. Uh, the first message was broadcast across the ARPANET, which connected computers across a great distance using telephone lines from one end of the world to the other. And so they were connecting things by um, the internet. And what happens in 1991, which is a reflection of the exact same thing happened in modernity, when modernity had that printing pressed and there was a great burst of information that could not be easily controlled and uh, that information was quickly easily and cheaply passed from one person to another in 1991 the www was invented to put people in access and able to access the internet this radically shakes and shapes things um, in the same way that it did for modernity and how it reshaped all of modernity we are now being reshaped today suddenly information is easily passed cheaply passed from one person to another it's as though every person on earth has a megaphone and can declare whatever it is they want and thousands of people um, anywhere from those right next door to those a million miles away can hear and, and experience what it is they're saying. And that is not easily and quickly and um, functionally contained. And so information now is just in every direction. Some of the things they talk about with postmodernity then is they, they call this um, the era of relativism. Relativism meaning 
uh, or subjectivism, kind of uh, both of, in, uh, related to each other, is this idea that in, in modernity we believed that truth was qualifiable and quantifiable. I could see it, I could touch it, I could taste it. Fact was fact, and that's all that mattered, and you had to bat, bat, base it and back it up with fact. In postmodernity, we're finding that truth is becoming, the idea of truth is becoming subjective, that it's what one experiences, and whether or not it's backed up by fact doesn't matter. It can be completely wrong, but if you just feel like the earth is flat, because I can look out my window and it just looks flat, then it must be flat. So regardless of fact or science, truth has become relative to each person's um, own uh, experience. Let's just go through the list here of what postmodern characteristics look like. Um, uh, before we begin this postmodern characteristics, I think maybe we should take just one more little break, take a little breather. It's a lot of information we're taking in, I know, but um, just hang on. Let's talk a little bit about postmodernity and why then uh, it is shaping and why things are being looking the way they are today. Awesome about that is um, let me try to describe what the video looks like. It's these um, men sitting shirtless, many of them shirtless, around a kitchen table and simply singing to one another. Uh, this comes from Georgia, uh, from a, a, a pretty well-known baritone. I guess his name is Gocha Abuladze. I can't say it correctly. I apologize to you, but he has won some accolades for opera and beyond, and it looks like it was his brother, from what I understood, his brother Ucha Abuladze. And they're just singing in bare-chested these beautiful songs that I assume are uh, some sort of Georgian um, folk song or something just it's just beautiful it, it is a stunning thing now now here's what's the coolest thing this video taken in somebody's kitchen has found its way to my little space here in Littleton Colorado and I get to revel in it when we talk about 
we're now seeing beyond borders and we're now becoming a global identity. We're, we're seeing ourselves and how we live globally. This is what I'm talking about. And this is how communication is radically reshaping our culture. Now, now I have this song in my soul and I, I can't let it go. So um, I, I recommend uh, looking up some stuff on his Facebook page. His Facebook page is just Gocha, G-O-C-H-A. You'll see more about him there and maybe find some more uh, videos and things like that for him there. But ah, just great stuff. Okay, so let me try to focus a little bit here and get us on track. And um, I'm, we're just going to end with a little list of some characteristics of post-modernity. And um, I'm just going to kind of walk through these as uh, as sort of little hallmarks of what post-modernity is. Now, uh, is this a complete list? No. Am I breaking it down all completely? No. So before you send me lots of emails about how off I am, I know I'm not perfectly in sync. Again, this is not my expertise, but I find this, again, just when we've talked about it in other places, people thought this was a helpful conversation, so I'm going to share it here. So here we go. First characteristic of postmodernity is we've gone from a dependence on authority and a trust in authority to a skepticism towards authority so that there is now a deep distrust of institutions. Uh, if you just think of how um, uh, people post uh, 1991 and how they think of institutional language, words like corporate is a four-letter word. That is considered an insult to be called corporate. Um, uh, company is, is, a, is a four-letter word. A church is a four-letter word because it represents a, a greater body which wants to tell you what to think and believe. And so there's a, just a distrust in institutions. Uh, again, don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying uh, that this is just a hallmark of the postmodern culture. We've gone from the local identity to the national identity. Now we see ourselves as a global identity. Um, the, the whole idea of individual nation states is slowly fading away. And so um, that's why for a lot of younger generations, the kind of like my country first, your country last concept is it, it grates on uh, those ears because we see how we all are interconnected and that our economy affects your economy. And we've seen the ways in which we have in uh, North America bullied small and poor countries with saddled them with extraordinary debt and and enslavement of its people, both real and economic and social, that we affect our global partners around the world. Uh, a big movement, a, a big uh, a big experiment in that direction is the EU, the European Union, and and seeing that how can all of these uh, nations begin to work more towards a unified global identity. So, you know, we don't, you know, it used to be that um, in, in uh, I was a Norwegian farmer in North Dakota in the United States. That's sort of how I got my identity. And if I wanted to know more about myself, I went to my local people and they informed who I, who I am and who I was. And 
And that's how I discovered who I was. Now I am influenced by people around the world with their thoughts, with their ideas. It's it's like I say, it's how you can have goths in Uzbekistan. It's not because Uzbekistan is a giant goth culture. It's because there are people in Uzbekistan who have access to ideas, um, style, um, ideology around the goth culture that they are attracted to. And so they take on that culture and they own that culture on their own in Uzbekistan. It's not because they're getting that from their local culture. They're learning that from a global um, information, global identity. And so uh, next is that we have moved from uh, that spoken story to the written word. And now the primary way we share information is by image and the word. So using picture along with words. Um, you know, when we looked at a magazine ad in modernity and, and the early magazine ads or the newspaper ads, you might have a little picture of a car and then just paragraphs of copy telling you about the benefits of the car and what you can do in the car and what the people in the car are doing and how they're using the car and how the car is good for you. Now it's just a giant picture of a car and across it says, built for tough. That's it. Three words with a giant image because we've realized that the picture, the picture of what we see um, gives us that emotive response that we desire. And so these pictures become, um, and using them alongside words are the primary way in which we're transporting and sharing ideas and so it's, it's radically shaped things because it's moving us, um, our emotions, and it's hitting new parts of our brain and how we share um, ideas. Uh, we, um, we thought that there would be sort of a, um, you know, they used to talk about the United States being a melting pot. Now what we're seeing more is that we become a tribe of individuals where there is a collective story, but then we're really highlighting the individual story. And that the individual story is um, a critical part of each person. Um, and that what we are is a whole tribe of many individual stories rather than all of us sharing a single communal story, which we might have said through modernity. There's also this whole idea of technology as identity. How we use social media and how we use our technology is becoming a very extension of how we see ourselves, express ourselves, and connect with others. So technology is becoming a part of not just shaping our identity, but is actually becoming a part of our identity. We're living into uh, what we're calling pluralism in this culture. Um, you, if I was in, it was 1953 and I was standing in line at a grocery store, the person in front of me and the person behind me probably were all people who went to church, believed in God, went to the same schools, did all the same things. What we're seeing now is we're living more into this known global um, information that we are a wide variety of many kinds of people uh, this has given permission for people to step out of social norms and express themselves for how they think and believe. There's no longer a social mandate that you go to church or you go to synagogue or you go to, um, and again, this is 
Western Europe, North American, Australasian, there is no longer that social mandate that you express your faith. You can be a person of no faith, little faith, all faith. You can be a person who says they believe in uh, a, a, a different kind of God than anyone else. And all of these live bumped up against each other in that we live in a plural society. There is a multiplicity of ideas that all live right next to each other. Um, and we need to see ourselves as being plural um, in, a, in the cultures in which we live. We cannot assume anymore that the person in front or behind me believe, think, behave, and have the same ideas that I do. We are definitely in a post-Christendom society. Um, we are behind what they've experienced in in Europe and Western Europe. Um, they have long since moved past post-Christendom. Christendom meaning that... that um, the the cent still sitting at the center of culture is uh, a Christian Christianity um, uh, identity of of being Christian that it is a social norm that we are a part of a Christian culture we're now past that that no longer is is it becoming normal uh, that just everyone is a Christian just recently I think within the last five years for the first time in the United States history that they've been um, reviewing this, I think the Pew Report came out that for the first time, more than half of people identified as non-Christian. And so we cannot see ourselves living in a post, in a, in a Christian society. We are past Christendom where, uh, where we want, our, uh, the church plays a center part of power in our culture. And then uh, a last one, which we didn't talk much about, but I think is a good one, is that experience trumps authority. So if you were to tell me something's true, if you were to tell me that something's true, but I experience something very different than that, my experience will trump that authority almost every time. Experience is the big wheel of the tricycle pulling along our traditions, pulling along our belief sets. If you were to tell me that that these people are evil because of maybe who they choose to love or the color of their skin or who they choose to worship or not worship and what I see in them. And because of that, they're bad people. But what I see in these people, uh, because sometimes because of who they love or who they worship, good, trustworthy, kind-hearted people, I'm not going to think of them as evil just because you tell me I'm supposed to. Authority must be backed up by experience in this culture. Again, not the way, you know, it's, I'm just, don't kill the messenger. I'm just saying the way it is that authority now has to be backed up by experience. So if an authority just says, uh, this is true, but everyone else experienced some, something exactly the opposite, um, they're going to doubt and be skeptical of that authority. So experience is the most important thing. Uh, I just want to close with this idea. So here's how all of these cultures are bumping up against each other in the church context. You know, so for all of these years in modernity, in this Christendom society where everybody went to church and mostly we spent our time thinking about it. We didn't spend our time acting on it. It was more about an ascent of ideas and the conversation between people was, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? That's the conversation. So if I, so if I walked into any church and I walked in there, I'd say, you know, um, what, what, what is this place? And you'd say, I'm a Methodist. And you'd say, and I'd say, well, tell me about it. That would be the standard conversation. So the, the modern conversation on faith is 
um, what church do you go to and tell me about it? So what church do you go to? And because it's from a Christendom culture and tell me about it because we're mostly about reason and thinking. In the postmodern culture, the primary conversation is people are coming into our communities and they're saying, do you believe in God? And show me, not tell me, show me. So you can see how this happens, that we have a young person coming into a community and their question is, do you believe in God? And our answer is, well, I'm Lutheran. And they say, well, show me what that means. And I'll say, you know, robes and a green book or a red book or a cranberry book. And they'll say, no, I want you to show me that you believe in God. And I'll say, Garrison Keeler and potlucks and um, a mighty fortress is our God. And no wonder they don't understand what we're trying to say. I think the big shift in our culture is that our culture is holding us accountable to the message of the way of Jesus. That if our, our actions do not back up our words, then no wonder they don't believe. There's this great little line in, a, in, a, in a, uh, this album. There's a band called DC Talk that came out in the early 90s, this band called Jesus Freak. And uh, I love that album when I was a kid. You know, problematic. There's problematic theology in it that I would have problems today. Didn't as much then, but would today. But I've evolved and grown. But one of the lines, there's somebody speaking at the beginning of one of their things, of one of their songs, and they say, um, one of the hardest things that we have to deal with is people who uh, speak the message of Jesus with their lips and then deny Jesus by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think that's really on the button in so many ways. If the way you are walking does not look like the Christ and the Christ message, you are going to have a whole generation of people who can see right through it. This this postmodern age is an era of an entire generation of people who can smell BS long before we spoke it, long before we thought it. They are the most commercialized generation by a long shot, by a huge long shot. And they can see if something is real and authentic and true or if it's just empty words. We have a community of people who are skeptical of the story of Jesus because this institution that we call the church has been used to abuse and hurt people. And I know that it makes the Christ weep for that. And we have a lot to do to rebuild trust for people that the message of Jesus isn't just a reflection of white nationalistic culture, but has a story that goes against all of those things and instead shows us another way, a way of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That, that is what I think our community and our world is hungry for. They don't need more words. They need us and our body and our activity doing the work of 
the Christ, the way of Christ every day so that it is seen and experienced and not just talked about. I mean, think about it. It's When I was a kid, you know, a mission trip was we went and sang carols at the local nursing center. Now we have students going to Guatemala and 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 walking alongside people as they they help communities it it is a radically different community we can't just say we have to do we have to give people the experience of life and a way that looks different than anywhere else that is our message and that is what i think we're about so postmodernity post postmodernity whatever we want to call it it's where we are right now, whether we like it or not. And I just pray that we learn to live into it and we learn to speak the way of Jesus in brand new ways that bring wholeness and life to all. Thanks for listening to the Good Courage Podcast. I'm Jay Gamlin. As always, all ideas and heresies and dumb things I own. If you have any thoughts or complaints, feel free to email me at thehouseofgoodcourage at gmail.com. Our theme song is When You Go by the unbelievable and talented Matt Fagan. I encourage you to share and like this podcast, and as always, good courage. I wish you'd never-